Welcome back to the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. This week, we look back at our most listened to episodes of the year so far. It's been quite the year. I hope everyone is still close to home, healthy, and safe. Um, but we wanted to take a look back at some of the folks that we have talked to both before the pandemic started and since the pandemic started about visions for what digital technology holds for the future, what the pandemic seemed to portend and may hold true for much longer than any of us had wanted or thought possible. Um, but either way, let's get into it with some of our illustrious guests, including Gabriella McCoy of Bacardi, Orchid Bertelson of Nestle, Aaron Pritz and Tim Sewell of Reveal Risk, Erwin Lazar of Mertes Research, Jennifer Heyman of Wells Fargo, and Brian Solis of Salesforce. All right, without further ado, our many guests. In this uh, data-driven industry, um, where is Bacardi getting those insights? Because there's a certain layer I'm sure that you can get at massive scale at a superficial level, but how are you digging into like the motivations or, you know, the stuff that's not immediately conversion focused, but you said you're trying to understand. It sounds like you're almost doing, you know, an ethnography or the anthropology of your customers. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. That's definitely part of it. Um, but there's one thing I have to say before we continue, which is um, we, we refer to, you know, people often say consumer insights, but I'm going to be banning the word consumer throughout this whole entire podcast, if that's okay. Um, yes, because we agree. Really, <laughs> all right. So a big X on consumers. Um, I like to refer to them as people or as humans. Um, I appreciate that as a human. <laughs> Well, good, 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 good. Uh, because, you know, the word consumer really takes us to more of this like add to cart mindset and mentality um, and transactions. And, and really, if, if we want to be a brand that people love, um, it's all about connection and connecting with humans. So having said that, um, so where does the data come from and how do we act on it? I think is that was the question that you said? Yes. yes. All right. So. Um, First of all, I have to say that I have a heightened sense of curiosity. Um, I think I was born asking my mom, why, why, why? Um, and uh, that curiosity really um, has fueled this kind of obsession I have with understanding people. Um, and data for me comes from everywhere. It's um, data and insights are everywhere. Um, but we have, you know, uh, what you were just saying, George, anthropology. Um, we have two different types of data that we usually look at in insights. The first is qualitative and the second is quantitative. Um, I'll give you an example uh, about the qualitative data. Um, let's say that we want to understand and develop strategies for our products during the Super Bowl. Uh, we'll go out to people's homes, um, hang out at parties with their friends. I know that sounds a little bit creepy, maybe. <laughs> but um, Not if, if you're you the really one bringing wanna... the Bacardi. <laughs> Hey, that's right. That's exactly right. We, exactly. <laughs> Where there's a party, there's Bacardi, right? <laughs> um, so uh, we'll go and hang out with them and we'll learn all about, you know, um, the Super Bowl is about comfort and sweatpants and 
you know, enjoying the comfort of their of their family, of their friends, comfort food. And with that, we'll learn probably that it's all about easy to make cocktails that still taste delicious. So that's kind of like the qualitative side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you have to get a little bit geeky. Uh, and then there's the quantitative side. Um, and that part is, you know, it's about digging into the hardcore numbers, um, data, it's about not to get too technical, but if we're launching a new, um, let's say we're launching a new spirit, you know, is the viscosity okay? Is the alcohol burn level the right? The level of sweetness. So there's kind of those like two sides, the qual and the quant. Okay, that's good to know. And then, do you find at all a confrontation or a conflict between? you know, massive amounts of quantitative data, which is now easier than ever to get at, and the remit to Ah. establish an emotional connection, which may require doing things that are harder to measure or quantify? That's a great question, actually. Um, I often talk about, I talk a lot about this whole idea of emotional connections between brands and consumers. And when I think about big data, I mean, we're, you know, marketers are like kind of the worst offenders of like data hoarders, right? <laughs> um, and, and if you think about it, I mean, obviously like technology, big data, all of that is going to continue to run its course. Um, and, you know, to some degree, both the big data and technology um, has helped us to connect better with humans. Um, but at the same time, you know, what keeps me up at night a lot is that while our brands are more connected and maybe understand people with big data and numerical ways, um, I see us a little bit more disconnected from humanity than ever. And Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say like only at Bacardi, I've worked, um, I've had an interesting career working in booze and burgers and condoms and detergents. Um, Pretty much anything, uh, I, I've, I've, I've touched it a little bit at least. And um, what I've seen is that the biggest problem is that brands get sucked into this, um, I call it the consumer matrix. Um, it's this idea of let's quantify people, let's categorize them, let's try to create these algorithms to predict their, their behaviors. Um, but what I've seen is that if we really want to have a true human understanding, people are like, they're cozier, they're messier, they're like a little bit imperfect, you know? You raised the point about how these technologies uh, come to the surface and how they're brought to bear on business. I think uh, about digital, right now we're talking about AI, we're talking about AR, but accompanying that is new realizations about data privacy and the calls for regulation, right? The, The common sentiment about regulating social media now versus what it was in say 2010 when it was first made public and kicking off. So you're in California, we have CCPA on, we actually have CPRE, sometimes called Kepra, close behind. Um, And I've heard you speak previously about how these regulatory measures, which some view as impediments, are, are actually creative challenges. Like, you know, that this should force marketers to think better about how do you communicate with people who truly opt in, who want to be, how do you create a, an environment where they want to be a part of it? So where you are at, in Nestle and at the front line of innovation, have you observed any uh, shifts or trends in marketers thinking around their relationship to data privacy and security? 
not yet. Short answer is not yet. Uh, you are making me sound like an optimist, by the way. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> so, for that. <laughs> that's, that's all right. I'll forgive you this one time. Uh, when it comes to CCPA, GDPR, um, just overall the attention to data privacy, uh, I do think that that is a very good thing that will challenge us to be better. I think as marketers, um, you know, I'll back up a bit. Sometimes you hear about a new technology or maybe a new ad tech or ad format um, or a way to reach consumers. And you're like, that's as a marketer, that's very cool. And then as a person, you're like, that's kind of creepy. And so I think that we should ask ourselves the question, just because we can, should we? And I think that with the rise of, uh, you know, or the attention with CCPA, I think with the increased conversation around regulating um, different digital platforms, I think part of it is just that the everyday person is under starting to understand how much data they're giving up um, for personalized communications. Mm-hmm. And and as digital marketers, I mean, we are inherently more savvy about the space. I mean, we are literally getting paid <laughs> to use this knowledge um, every day. And so I do think that is the responsibility for up to us is to ask the question, just because we can target that person based on this, should we? Is it a good experience? Is it a value-add experience? Or is it a um, potentially creepy experience? And how much data is enough data? Uh, we talk about first-party data, third-party data, and the, the reality is that they are. It, it, we're working with people, right? Um, and so, if a piece of creative that we're trying to put out there is uh, really geared towards, you know, like pepperoni pizza lovers, how much personal data do you actually need for that? Right is the question that I would pose. Um, and so, I think that there is inherently a responsibility that we need to put on ourselves to say. All right, to provide the best consumer experience possible, what is the minimum amount of data that we actually need? That's a, yeah, that's a good, um, that's sort of borrowing from the minimum viable product model for uh, uh-huh. product design and development. I, yes, and that strikes me as right because when I was working for a digital marketing agency, I remember getting these huge data sets. And I think, if I remember correctly, this client was. Um, financial services like retirement investment services and this data set was like everything under the sun and I was like mm-hmm. how does understanding that this group of people over indexes on buying like fish sauce in the grocery store <laughs> I was like I think there's too much data here I was like mm-hmm. if I'm trying to actually make reasonable decisions like having that data that's more a paralysis by analysis it's like I don't, I right. don't know how to take any action off of that information yeah yeah. And, and I think that that's the point where with data, more isn't always better. Like when it comes to just uh, acquiring data for, I guess, marketing activities, I think that the unsexy part is that that data needs to be structured and needs to be labeled and it really needs to be well organized. And you as a person or as a marketer, need to understand what you want that data to do or what kind of decisions you want to make based off of that data. Um, and I think that there are a lot of times where we view different things as a silver bullet, you know, the answer to all of our problems, whether it's more AI or more technology or more data. 
And the reality is that it's more nuanced than that, right? Which I think is really empowering because we as marketers get to make that decision. That's right. (laughs) So again, very optimistic view. There you go. (laughs) With the sudden and rather dramatic shift to these work from home environments, and in some cases, as you said, um, people haven't fully transitioned. Um, Given that you have this broad spectrum of clients, Um, some who have already transitioned. It sounds like some who are still going into the office trying to figure out how to transition. Um, I'm curious as to what is Reveal Risk's take on the broader operational and security risks to, uh, to, to migrating to a fully virtualized environment. Sure, sure. Um, so from, from an operations perspective, you, you've got, Two, two kinds of organizations. You've got organizations that are really comfortable extending trust, and then you've got organizations that, that struggle to, uh, to trust their employees to work remotely. So I've, I've seen examples, um, not one of our clients, but uh, a friend of mine works for a company that as they've transitioned to more remote work, is requiring employees to log in to a, a video chat session and just leave it open the whole time they're working. And if it shuts off, they don't get paid. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. So that, I mean, that, that just creates a, a, a real sense of distrust. And they're, they're struggling to be productive, both for technical reasons, because it's a, a lot of bandwidth that they're losing. And then from a, a workplace culture of well, nope, nobody's even looking at this feed. They're just watching to make sure that it's it's logged in all the time, and, and somebody might look. Uh, and then you've got organizations that are, of course, much more comfortable with this remote environment, where even though you, you may not see a person for a couple three days, there's there's trust that the work is getting done because you can see the output. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, one of the biggest things I worry about from a security standpoint is those organizations that have the hardware, such as laptops, and those that are trying to rush to find anything that will work, whether it's, you know, go to go to a Best Buy or Amazon and get a laptop or even potentially worse, you know, use your home computer and here's the way to log into the environment. Um, I think as security practitioners, there's a lot of ways that you can do both of those things in the right way, but they do take some process and time. And time is really not what a lot of uh, companies are afforded with as they try to rush to, to get out of the red from a non-productive shutdown standpoint. So um, I think one thing that we can't do is just say, well, we got to have everything buttoned up 100% secure or nobody's going to work. That's not a business reality. But I think teams need to work in parallel. Maybe they would have to cut some corners to get some initial um initial productivity up and running, but I think the risk of just kind of assuming that that's okay and not doubling back to make sure that the environments are hardened and the connection methods are are secure is is really critical these days. And uh, I, I do I do worry a bit about the the workforce members kind of the defaulting to home tools that they know, like you know for example social social media chat uh, mm-hmm. that may that may not even be um, 
protected from a data ownership of what's being typed in there, um, but also not necessarily secure. And uh, from a re- I was talking to a, an attorney a couple days ago about um, records management concerns where uh, specifically legal holds are required for certain industries under certain litigation. And if people are working in non visible environments, then that can increase some or can cause some legal risk from that perspective. So lots of different, I think, risks to think about. But I think in this crisis, you've got to think about what are the most important things that you need to get right and then stay stay with it as you figure out how to dial in the security as the crisis uh, starts to subside. Indeed. I think an all or nothing approach is not conducive to very agile or emergency planning. Right. So I did want to return to this notion of ROI because I'm very intrigued by that. And and your research is actually some of the first that I've seen. And so for the benefit of our listeners, you know, you looked through your uh, clients and your research and some of these stats are really staggering, such as, you know, reducing the need for meetings by an average of 30%, uh, reduced IT spend by an average of 161,000 a year because they've eliminated redundant apps. Um, or, I mean, maybe more to the point here, uh, more than 20% of your survey respondents have delivered an average revenue gain of $368,000 by improving sales team collaborations. I mean, these are real business outcomes uh, being driven by technology. And I think it's very easy to get wrapped up in kind of technology for technology's sake. But I was um, wondering if you saw, you know, to your point, this seems like a bit of a silver lining uh, to this COVID um, pandemic that business operations may have accidentally had to adopt things in a fashion that now have netted them great gains. Um, what is your sense of like the long-term impact uh, of these technologies? Yeah, I think um, it's, we've, we've seen just uh, an acceleration of existing plans in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned back to that, that discussion earlier where there were some companies that were really in good, good shape to go to work from home. There were some that had plans to roll out applications that were kind of struggling to, to get to that point. Now they've had no choice. And then the others that, you know, were kind of caught blindsided. Uh, so what we have seen is that, the, the, this has accelerated existing trends around move to the cloud, around use of team collaboration applications, around use of video. Uh, it's it's allowed companies to overcome a lot of the resistance. So, you know, there are awful lot of folks we talked to in the last couple of years that would say, yeah, we rolled out this video solution, but, you know, my boss won't get on video. So therefore nobody gets on video <laughs> or we, you know, we've got lots of people who just, oh, my camera's broken. I always love that one. Um, and or people that still insist on sending email as an example. I've seen plenty of those scenarios. So uh, I think that we used to use those, the data points you, you mentioned. We've, we've gathered those for the last couple of years. And we're, we're finding that in a, a fairly small segment of the, of the population that we talked about, 25% of companies are able to gather quantifiable metrics for their collaboration investments. The rest are still of the mindset that, you know, it's not something we do or we only worry about whether or not it works. Maybe we look at whether or not people are using the tools, but we don't correlate use with any business benefit. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see um, more, and we're seeing more interest in 
looking for what is that actual return on investment? Did I save money? Did I make money? Did I uh, improve productivity? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, IT always ha- is, is under increasing scrutiny to justify what it's spending money on. Um, and we found, uh, you know, in, in six months, a year ago, having conversations with IT leaders that when we shared some of this data about the benefits of team collaboration, the benefits of meeting applications, they would take that and say, okay, now maybe I can get people to start using it if I say that we're missing out. Um, now I think, you know, you're, you'll see that kind of data continuing to, to demonstrate the need to maintain these applications, to expand the applications and, and so on. I mean, that's interesting. Um, and it strikes me as it could also be if, if you're, I mean, it could either be accidental or it could be intentional, but given the uncertainty of what a post COVID world looks like, but also knowing that a lot of our uh, customers here at Safeguard um, are, you know, fortune 500 global 500 brands. And they're not, they are now out of the panic. They are looking at like Q4 and they may be looking at these channels as a strategic competitive advantage, right? If I'm uh, decreasing meetings and increasing productivity and increasing sales team collaboration, and my competitor is still either dragging their feet or they're kind of in the middle ages of adoption, like that actually, I can leapfrog uh, some of my competition. Are you, are you seeing, I know we talked at the top of the call that you're still seeing a little bit of panic, but is anyone coming to you thinking kind of like the long, the long view here? What's that long-term investment? Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it yet. I mean, I'm sure it's happening. I just haven't talked to, to folks about it. The, the one area where we did see organizations trying to get aggressive and differentiate from competitors is embracing digital channels for customer-facing communication. Mm-hmm. So starting to leverage WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and Apple Message and so on to enable, you know, if I can communicate with my customers on those services and my competitors can't, um, you know, there's an option opportunity there. I think the other area where we're seeing a lot of interest in the team collaboration space is wanting to extend it out to supply chains, customers, partners, whether that's taking advantage of things like Slack share channels or um, applications like Neo that uh, sit in the middle and, and confederate mm-hmm. among this, this uh disparate uh, messaging platforms uh, or even internally among disparate messaging platforms. So um, I think you'll see that there'll be, you know, there'll be an expansion once people get comfortable using the team collaboration apps and they see the value in them and they start to maybe experience some of the returns on investment that we talked about, that they will look for how can we expand this? What, what other communication collaboration problems are we having? And really the big one I think is B2B and B2C. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Um, from just a P&L perspective, if, you know, uh, if, if companies can save money by cutting down on physical space and they've seen productivity increase in work from home, there's a temptation of like, do we need a physical office? If, you know, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here about some of those implications um, for the physical space. Yeah, I I think we will see significant interest in cutting real estate costs. You know, if you look at where the, the unfortunately, the economic numbers that have been published over the last couple of days are, you know, terrible. Uh, so companies will be looking at where can I save money? And 
if they're finding that it, not only are people productive when they're at home, but maybe they're more productive. You know, there's been some data that has shown that people tend to work a little bit longer, get more tasks done. Um, you know, they, they don't have the, some, they don't have somebody knocking on their door. Yeah. Or they yeah. cut out the commute. Um, you know, they cut out mm-hmm. the expense of going to lunch, the expense mm-hmm. of, of putting gas in a car and so on. That's not very much anymore, but you know, uh, wearing terror vehicles, uh, there are a lot of advantages to having people work at home. I think companies are really going to struggle to find the right balance because for um, a lot of people, it's difficult to be 100% full-time at home. It doesn't completely replace the benefit you get from getting people around, you know, conference room table and, and being able to share ideas or work on, um, you know, work on, on projects and so on. And, and also building that, you know, that, that bond between people, uh, that people feel like they're part of the organization, that their work is noticed, uh, that they get to know their coworkers. So I don't think work from home will completely replace office environments. I think it will uh, shrink the office uh, again to, to your question of, um, you know, again, once people start to realize that, that opportunity to save money in real estate costs. Oh, so I wanted to come back to my question again. I'll ask it in, in, in two parts. My Looking forward to kind of like a post-COVID world, because a lot of our customers are now, they're sort of out of panic. In Virginia, at least, we're, I think in San Francisco, very much so, we're in the sort of weeks eight and 10 of this. Um, we're, we're past the immediate business continuity concern and very much at what does a Q4 look like? Um, I think some of our customers are very critically looking at these new technologies as a competitive advantage. You know, if I, if I have uh, collaboration tools in place, does that make my team more productive than my rivals, et cetera? Um, so to that end, uh, can you speak to how Wells evaluates like new channels? Like how do you decide when to either you need a dedicated Twitter handle for X, Y, and Z, or is there a population you're trying to reach on a different channel? I ask because we have some uh, regulated businesses that have, for example, a lot of investors in China or they have a lot of dealings with Hong Kong. So they may be small investment firms by you know Wells Fargo standards, but they are actually looking to use WeChat because it's like a very business critical concern. We have others who have a lot of customers in Latin America. So WhatsApp is a concern. I was just curious as to how, what is the process in vetting the, that channel readiness? Hopefully, most big brands like Wells Fargo already had a vetting process in place, you know, long before COVID. Uh, I think if anything, the uncertainty of the environment that we're facing right now lends credibility if we can prove that we can securely connect with people through other channels. And I Mm -hmm. think without question, anyone actively publishing in social right now can state that social conversation has gone through the roof. So significant growth rates. I mean, brands are seeing as much as 200%, if not more increase in overall mentions in social, and then, you know, rates up to easily 100% greater in how many replies you're doing with the same resources. So uh, I, I hope that companies like ours 
continue to move opportunities forward based on demonstrated examples of customer success and connection um, through the coronavirus. I think the key thing I'm seeing as well is not so much growth in specialized branding, um, but com greater commitment to streams of conversation public published through existing channels. I know mm. it's something we've been doing a lot more of, um, examples like showcasing a lot more of our internal e emails on LinkedIn, not something we would previously have done before as a thought leadership tool from our C-suite but something that we think is is working and it's not just working for us, it's working for other brands. I think additionally, I saw some, I just saw an announcement this morning that one of the large social media management tools has now announced it's integrating TikTok. So mm -hmm. that will open the door for brands that are customers of that tool to now be able to see TikTok conversations in a standardized uh, way in which they could compare against other performance metrics. So is that going to increase the number of brands using TikTok? Very possibly. I think we've already seen a lot of people migrate to TikTok for pure content during coronavirus because that's oh, been sure. such an effective way you know, to communicate with that younger audience. And, and I think with messaging platforms too, I mean, I think the, the Facebooks um, of the world, you know, specific to Messenger for a second, have really benefited from understanding um, and learning the metrics off of all the security and the safety they've put around good content. And in fact, I've read some things that I didn't look into deeply that Facebook alone had invested significant resources in ensuring that all their coronavirus content was accurate, was real news, et cetera. So all of those steps benefit security put into a platform like WhatsApp to facilitate future conversation. So the challenge really is for the brands to come forward to say, hey, we operated in this different way successfully. Let's make sure we now morph that into the tools that our customers are telling us and demonstrating to us they want to use. So that would be the best outcome. Okay. And that, that, does, that goes um, part of the way in answering my last question here, which is um, whether it's socialmedia.org, um, your peers at Brand Innovators, or, or, or just in financial services, what advice would you give to them during this time to digital marketing professionals to, you know, it can be everything from comfort advice <laughs> to, to professional advice. So I, I think it's kind of a mix of both. I think it's, you really have to put your customer first with mm -hmm. everything that you do right now. You really have to think about them. What, what are they saying? What are they doing? What is their context? Because remember, you might push out a message that you think will land in a certain way, whereas your customer might interpret it and or prioritize that, if you will, into their overall emotional construct very differently. So I think it's really important to take that into account. I think it's okay as well to say, we're going to be slower. We're going to say less. We're going to be okay with being more reactive versus mm -hmm. more proactive. I think this is one of the key questions brands struggle with all the time is how much should I be saying? And, you know, is silence really a bad thing right now? Do I need some press better than no press? So I think you have to think about your customer and, and weave those two together and make sure you have the arm 
able to be as reactive as possible when the customer does raise their hand. Yeah, I love I love the energy that you're sharing. It's fun and exciting to hear that, you know, as we're all trying to navigate uh, life with COVID as at the time that we're talking. So I'd love to know from the perspective of a digital anthropologist, how does life after COVID look for businesses and what is it going to take to survive the new normal? First, I'm, uh, I'm going to give away a little background secret to all of the listeners. We do have video and we can see each other. And I'm very jealous of your light in your room. Uh, <laughs> and, and yours too, George. I, I'm, I'm actually very jealous. I'm in a dark office, uh, which the only light that really emanates here is from my monitor. But other than that, uh, I'm going to take some of that sunlight uh, and brighten my, my day. So the answer to your question is, I wonder as a digital anthropologist, and also as an uh, aspiring philosopher, uh, is there life after COVID? Uh, and, and by that, I mean, uh, or is it something we live with for the rest mm-hmm. of our life? And it's, it's an important question to ask because it helps, it helps me think in terms of scenarios. Uh, so coming back to the novel economy that I was uh, mentioning earlier, the novel economy is is this name I'm giving this conversation. Uh, it, it is it helps me it helps me get my mind around it uh, so that I can contemplate possibilities and 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 also tangible steps towards something. So when we talk about the new normal, uh, I you know I I don't know what that means other than yes things are different. Uh, in some cases, the new normal could be uh, <laughs> described as Groundhog Day, uh, or it could be described as a blank canvas. Uh, to create the future uh, under just disruptive circumstances that no one really saw coming except for Bill Gates, I guess. And the thing that I would like to to think about with the novel economy is that like the virus, it, it just means new and unusual. So that we don't necessarily have a defense mechanism. We don't necessarily have a playbook in order to best respond and, and in order to best move forward. Uh, I, I talk about things like if we're thinking about going back to normal or if we're basing our future on yesterday's definition of normal, well, we really need to rethink that because there were many things in that normal that, you know, we'll put in air quotes, that was part of the problem. So essentially, even though we are disrupted, we're not bouncing back to what we knew. We have an opportunity to bounce forward to something new. And that rhymed and I didn't intend it to, but (laughs) the the point is that, we have an we have this unique once in a lifetime opportunity to reimagine what we do moving forward the novel economy yeah i think we'd say both opportunity and necessity right because yeah the stakes are very high for businesses because as you said i don't know that there's a quote unquote post covid there's not just like this you know, the switch goes off and we just go back to quote unquote normal. So new normal becomes normal. And when you have such disruptive forces, not just technologically, but like consumer demand is down, um, people have to work differently. How do you connect with them? I think, yeah, what you're saying is if you were to just return to normal, that we already had inertia problems with that. So how do we, I guess my question to you would be like, what would be your advice right now we're past the hair on fire stage to companies trying to look to Q3, Q4, 2021. Like how do you completely retool your thinking 
upright around some of these yeah. things that we take for granted. They say the uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, mm -hmm. And I couldn't, I couldn't think of a better, a, a better way to think forward. So let's, let's, let me take a step back because there's, there's opportunity and like you said, necessity, and there's also stages. Uh, so like you said, the hair on fire stage, uh, in the novel economy, I talk about survival, uh, then being alive, uh, and then aiming to thrive. And this, this plays out between now and say anywhere between 24 to 36 months, cause we're not going to move that. We're not going to move that quickly. Uh, in that time, we're still sort of in the early phases because much of the world is still in lockdown mode. And it's really difficult to assess what's going to be longer term behaviors right now in terms of what customers do want, what they don't want, how employees want to work, how they don't want to work. Uh, what, what I can't emphasize enough is as we start to plan for not just now, but forward, we have to look at data in an entirely new way. It's the best, it's the best things we have and add to that AI and machine learning and you know, really training it with these new filters, not the biased filters that we came into these times with. Because as of March 1st, 2020, so whenever you're listening to this, as of March 1st, 2020, we could look at that as the day the world changed from a data set perspective. So it's almost like you could throw all of your old data away and start all over again uh, and start to look at the patterns that are changing now so that we can also, you know, with predictive analytics, look at the, the changes that are coming. The reason I say that is because uh, I published a, a piece in CIO recently that looked at how shopping has already changed, how e-commerce was already on, an, on a trajectory to, to not rival physical commerce, but it was showing incredible promise for where it was going to be. And suddenly it's hockey stick uh, since March 1st. And it's only going to continue to do that as, as until we have a, a vaccine uh, and, and hopefully people don't deny its existence and we take it and we establish uh, a, a safer place to, to, to get back to, to life outside. Uh, people are going to be weary of shopping uh, and, and, and also behaving the way that they used to. So this means that digital becomes more important than ever before. So understanding those behaviors. And then lastly, splitting your digital transformation strategy at least into two parts. I, I call it bimodal digital transformation. This is something that was also inspired uh, in, in my work at, at Salesforce, is that you have now new standards for operational excellence. You have a remote workforce. You have e-commerce that's soaring through the roof. You have service now that has to really rely on digital. Uh, so automation and AI and chatbots, all of these things that are now taking priority. So you have operational excellence that you have to focus on. And then you have this new customer and uh, these new employee behaviors that are emerging. So how can we use digital uh, to essentially what's the best way to put this, to innovate in new business models and new business services. So these two things become absolute priorities for the organization to not just serve the necessity, but also start to carve out a new place in these new and emerging markets. Yeah, that's a, that's a good distinction. We've, we've heard... Um, you know, we've heard digital transformation a lot as a term, but most often what we find is it's 
actually digital optimization, right? Because you're just overlaying technology onto your existing processes. And I think what you're saying is you got to you know, rip out those processes and it's how does digital completely retool entirely new operations, entirely new processes. Yeah. Or said another way, digital transformation itself was digitally disrupted, right? It exposed right. everything that was lackluster, outdated, outmoded, uh, and also not targeted for the world that we were going on. And I think you put it, you, you put it perfectly. It's not like we weren't going to, to be digital uh, as a society. It's just absolutely accelerated. What's also yes. disrupted is behaviors. This is why digital transformation, I, I think when I wrote my first report on the subject in, I don't know, 2012, somewhere between 2012, 2014. And in that very first report, it said digital transformation can only be effective if we look at it from a human lens. Mm -hmm. And that human lens was the digital customer and the digital employee uh, because it gave us a sense of purpose and a sense of vision for why we were doing this and where we were going and what those stages look like. And shortly after that, I published the six stages of digital transformation to help guide all stakeholders, it wasn't just CIOs, but all stakeholders to build this digital business moving forward. But here we are. It's, uh, it's, almost, like, it's almost like I could, re I could republish that research and align it with today's narrative. And that, 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 roadmap, that roadmap would still work. It's still, even though we're disrupted by a, a virus, it's still human-centered. That is the best sense of purpose to guide us moving forward. And that wraps another episode of The Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. Many thanks to Kai Crowgetty for sound design and post-production, to Matthias Cefaletti for our theme music, and as ever, to our guests for lending their valuable time and expertise and insights. Stay safe, stay strong. This is The Zero Hour, signing off. Until next time.